0: Welcome, everyone, to another week of What Have We Done?
1: And we're going to be talking today about acid in wine. And we kind of started this topic as a, huh, what? what is acid in wine and it turns out that it's actually something we're quite familiar with so we're excited to talk about the different acids that are found in wine the processes that winemakers do in order to convert certain acids into others and then taste a one of our favorite wines which is a cup
0: i think it's one of those things that in the wine world is so commonly used and referred to and understood but for the amateur enthusiasts like ourselves um, is sometimes not so uh, accessible, even though there's lots of information out there on what acid is and how it like performs in different wines. I think it's still important to, to talk about that a little bit.
1: So where I started my research with acid was actually with food. Um, and y'all may be familiar with the Netflix series as well as book Salt, Fast, Fat, Acid, Heat by Samin Nosrat. I've uh,
0: still yet to watch. But. That's
1: excellent. It's so good. <laughs> but she is like a famous cook and teacher and is really an advocate of, you know, delving into these like very fundamental properties. And she speaks about acid as a crucial complement and elevator of flavor. And so she tastes a lot of dishes. And, and often we think about acid in terms of, you know, citric fruits, so lemons, limes, vinegars, but you also get a lot of acid from things like tomatoes, or um, coffee is actually acidic. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's see. Yeah, just a lot of different things are acidic. And wine, of course, falls on that spectrum. So we often think about acidity on the pH scale. Uh, pH scale goes from 1 to 14, 0 to 14, now I'm doubting myself, but a neutral is 7 and wines typically fall at 2.5 to about 4.5. The more acid a wine, the lower the pH it will be, so it will be closer to that 2.5 and the less acidic a wine, you're going to get closer to neutral, which is water 7 uh, and you'll be closer to that 4.5 range. And, let's see, there are three different types of acid in, rain, in wine, in rain. <laughs> <I> <laughs> bum bum bum. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> probably a lot more acids in rain. <laughs> oh, great. So it's raining right now. So that, that my mind was thinking about windows, rain, and anyway. Um, so there are three different types of acids in wine, or typical acids. There are probably a lot more. And they are Tartaric malic and citric acids and you also get a bit of yes no those three let me start with there uh tartaric acid is actually a derivative of a property found in the soil it's an organic compound um, and it's often associated with potassium and i'm struggling to remember exactly what the derivative is but if you mix um this potassium acid with um, another kind of chemical, you actually get baking powder. So it's a pretty uh, well-known in its baking powder form, and it's also found in wines. Um, Cool. Yeah, the internet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Malic acid is um, also found in grapes. It's usually found in berries uh, and other fruits. has a flavor so it's the kind of acid you associate with like apples so that super crisp tart kind of acidic flavor and then you get citric acid which uh, you always think about citrus fruits so limes lemons um, and it's found in very low concentrations in wine so often um, citric acid in other types of food is used as a preservative so winemakers may use um citric acid as an additive depending on how they're kind of trying to age their wine or, or um, do the uh, process of lowering other um, compounds. So those are the three. And actually the total acid uh, is referred to as, and I'm going to stumble over this because it has a lot of syllables, uh, titratable <laughs> acid. Um, and uh, that,
0: those, that's kind of like the, the way in which you think about the, the whole package. And just warning, there's gonna be a lot of scientific terms in this episode yes. that we may or may not be pronouncing correctly. I'm sorry to the scientists. We're doing our best.
1: We are doing our best, and we're really excited about <laughs> it because actually, like that, this is like what I really enjoy about the winemaking process, which are these like phenomenal ways of thinking about how science, particularly chemical compounds, you know, bind to certain proteins and create certain things. And again, don't know the science, but I'm really excited about it. <laughs> um, So the next thing I want to talk about in terms of acid is its role as one of the four fundamental traits of wine. So in wine, whenever you're doing a tasting, you're going to either get acid or you're going to get some sort of balance between acid, alcohol, tannin and sweet. Uh, And something that's sweet, as we talked about in the Champagne Sparkling Wines episode, was that sweet is on a a spectrum between sweet and dry. And the role that acid plays is complex. Um, One of the things it does for a wine is it brightens it, gives it a little bit of balance to other flavors, such as the sweetness or ripeness of of a wine, or the tannins, which creates that bitter, drying flavor. Um, and often a lot of people may, and I'm sure I did this when I started out drinking wines, get confused between tannin and acid. But tannin tends to dry out your mouth. It's very bitter. You get, uh, it's often found in red wines and it comes from the crushing of the seeds, skins and stems in the process of um, pressing the wines before it gets put into the other wine process that we've talked about before. Um, But the acid, I mean, just thinking about acidic things. You have that like famous meme of like a baby who like tastes a lemon for the first time and their mouth puckers and they start to salivate. That's exactly what you're going to get. You're going to get a lot of salivation when you have a, a very acidic wine. And you can kind of take measure of this between all types of wines. So from white, rosé, and red will all have some sort of level of acidity in
0: it. Mm-hmm. The other thing you can see, it too, in wines is not just in taste, but also in color, especially in red. So the more um, bright sort of red and ruby can mean that it's higher in acid. And if it's more brown or purple, this is because there's less oxidization, which is due to the lower acid content. Uh, and that just means like it's, a, it's a lower acid wine. Um, and I, a cool thing that I found was that um, wine that is too acidic can sometimes taste soapy. Hmm. And I know I've actually had some wines where I've tasted weird kind of detergent-y, soapy things. I had no idea that was acid. Um, But that's just a mark of the pH level being just kind of out of whack.
1: That's actually really cool. Yeah, I've seen references to oiliness in regards to acidity. And I think it's the more acidic a wine, it gets a bit more of an oily feel. But now I'm... Again, questioning myself, I'll come back to it. I'll see <laughs> if I can find my reference to that. And just to throw out there now, most of my information today comes from an amalgamation of Wine Folly, Wine Enthusiast, this blog by Usual, which I believe is a wine cellar, as well as Vine Pear and the Small Winemakers Collection. So shout out to really, I mean, this is the tip of the iceberg. There's so many sources on acidity in wine, and it's great that this is being discussed at a level that is open to the consumer. So um, after this episode, if you really want more information, it's totally out there and accessible. So something else that I really liked about kind of digging into this acid, like a acid in wine is this the way in which climate plays a role in acidity and we've talked about climate in our climate episode. So you should listen back to it. But essentially, the same rules apply um, in terms of determining acidity. The cooler or shorter a growing season is, the more acidity you'll have. So that means grapes don't green grapes don't have enough time to ripen. And so they keep the acidity, whereas some, something like sunlight um, or a longer growing season, a warmer climate, will allow for more sweetness to develop. Another way in which your wines will become a bit more acidic is actually in the soil. So what I was talking about in terms of potassium, the presence of potassium in soil increases the pH level. So it makes it more alkaline and less acidic. And so winemakers have to think not only about climate, but also the conditions of the soil when they're determining how much acid they want represented in their wines and kind of to play that balancing act of when to harvest, how to... um, process and and ferment their wines and then ultimately how to uh, barrel it Um, Mm -hmm. and I think you'll have a lot more information on this process, Kevin.
0: Maybe. (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) I
1: mean, that's mostly, I think those are most of my points about acidity. The only other fun fact is that, you know, we've talked a lot about the pH scale. pH measures intensity of acid. so. When you talk about total acid it's a little bit different than intensity and just thinking about those different measurements makes for a really fun conversation so go out
0: and taste wine and think about it its acidity level <laughs> speaking of which let's go ahead and pour some of what we're drinking today and talk about the acidity in it so today we are drinking a 2018 cab franc uh, from a winery in outside of Buffalo, New York, called Leeton Buffel, hmm. And they are a natural, um, organic-style winery. And I chose this today because, as we're going to talk about um, shortly, by using natural, organic methods of wine production, there are limits to how a winemaker can control acid levels in their wine. So natural wines tend to be very, very high in acid compared to um, other wines. And that's basically because different things can be added to wine, and different processes can be used that are not natural to help control, like chemi- chemical processes to help control the level of acid. And when those are absent, the acid sometimes kind of runs wild. And the, the biggest criticism I heard for people who don't like many of these natural wines are because they're very, very acidic now i really like that i also like very low acidic wines in the entire spectrum but Mm -hmm. um i definitely get that so but i I learned about that from the research for this episode so i've never really tasted natural wines with that thought of acidity in my mind so i thought we would grab um, a natural wine today and i don't know see if it see if the acidity strikes us at all um i think i mentioned the winery briefly before in this podcast but if not um, small shout out to Leeton Buffel. Um, really small, tiny production, uh, middle of nowhere, upstate New York um, winery. And yeah, this 28 Cab Franc is actually just a bottle with a piece of masking tape written 2018 Cab Franc because they didn't even have labels or anything for this wine. Well, my first thought on this wine is that you can definitely see in the color that mm. it's very, very bright and ruby. Um, Like many natural wines, it's a little bit more medium-bodied to begin with. Um, It is really bright.
1: So bright. And just, I dove in with a taste. (laughs) It is, what I love about natural wines is its funky grassiness. And in terms of acidity, what you get is, you get this like weird dual drying and salivating effect where as the grassiness fades from the, from your mouth, I guess, um, the tip of your tongue gets really dried out, but then underneath your tongue you have all this saliva (laughs) and you know, that's the, like the residual acid, like kind Mm -hmm. of just pooling after a taste.
0: Yeah. And just like holding it in your mouth and swishing it a little bit. You really can feel your mouth like salivating, try to compensate for that very harsh acidity it's, um,
1: I love yeah oh like
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, yeah no I I can definitely drink this
0: but yeah it's definitely not everyone's cup of tea and I, I guess if, if acid is such a potent you know characteristic of wine I could definitely understand why that why that would be but if, if you mm-hmm. like acidic wines um, definitely go out and try more natural wines
1: and again like what I, I like about Acidity in wines right is it's a balancer, right? It's it's not that You may you may associate acidity with a Pinot Grigio or a Sauvignon Blanc, right? You get those bright grapefruit citrusy tastes and flavors but just think about a Chardonnay as well that also has acidity and the spectrum of acidity in a Chardonnay comes from various ripening processes, you know, depending on and how Early the grapes are harvested, but also through the oak aging process, as well as, and I'm going to leave Kevin to talk about this, but the malolactic fermentation process. Uh, And what this process does at least is, you know, is change different types of acid. And actually this is where my oily texture comes in fact. So before I was speaking about oiliness in wine, so this this process uh, creates an oily texture. And so... Yeah, tell us
0: what this is. <laughs> yeah, so it's a pretty cool technique that's actually re- really commonly used um, to convert different types of acid and find the right balance between those. Because each of these different kinds of, types of acid, the malic acid, the lactic acid, do different things in like tastes and textures. Hmm. Um, so finding the right balance of those in certain types of wine um, is a really strategic thing that winemakers are constantly trying to like, perfect. Um, so one of the main techniques to use in trying to find that right balance is malolactic fermentation. Um, it's most commonly thought about in terms of shards, but it's actually used very, very commonly um, across wines and most reds because it's a naturally occurring process, even though you can augment that um, to increase the amount in which that happens. Um, but basically what this does is it uses bacteria to convert the acid from malic to lactic, which softens the acidity and this bacteria is, is naturally found in many of the components in the grape. So it's found like in the vines, and the winery itself, in the different mechanic pieces, the tanks and the pipes. It can occur naturally. Hmm. And so it automatically in the process seeps into the wine. And that in itself has a really cool effect um, on the wine. Um, and it is a decarboxylation process first of many scientific words to come up in this uh, little (laughs) lecture um, which means that carbon dioxide is released in this process uh, which is why different wines have different like venting processes and things that are done throughout the the fermentation processes to release those from different chemicals it it produces the same type of acid found in milk um, hence the name lactic uh, as in like lactate and other types of milk like Ideas, um, and it's often used in white wines that would be too acidic and sour without this process, bringing down that acidity. Uh, especially common, as, as Dana was mentioning, in New World Chardonnays, and this gives it that very buttery kind of creamy flavor um, that we even associate with like other dairy products. Um, uh, in red wine, it's more standardly used and more naturally occurring in the fermentation process. Um so because the the bacteria itself is, is found in different parts of the winemaking process, um the malactic fermentation can happen in many different stages in the winemaking process as well. Hmm. Uh from the first being crushed all the way into its final like barreling and bottling. Um and those choices of when to conduct that or when to augment that or when to um stop that are, are strategic choices by the winemaker that affect different qualities in the wine when it's produced. So the the process of introducing the bacteria is called inoculation, uh, and it can take place at at different times. And that's the introduction of this bacteria into the wine. Um, And it can be added with yeast in a primary fermentation, or it can be added as late as when the wine is racked uh, and added to the barrel or anywhere in between. And this is usually referred to when when there's an introduction of a cultured bacteria, so a bacteria that's being grown outside of the natural occurring bacteria in the winemaking process then introduced strategically at different points uh, to create the malolactic fermentation process. So what happens is that the bacteria are consuming the natural ingredients found in the grape, including glucose or the sugar, um, which is also interacting with the yeast for the standard fermentation process. So malactive fermentation is actually competing with standard fermentation for resources. There's only so much glucose that's available. And so to inter- introduce um, bacteria to increase the malactive fermentation also has effects on the more standard fermentation processes happening because the amount of glucose resources that are available are diminished through that. Um, And this can affect the the glucose levels um, and the alcohol levels as a result of the the fermentation. And so many winemakers these days don't use early inoculation. They're waiting until later um, towards the more of the racking and the barreling phase. Some winemakers will also want to prevent any mild fermentation from happening um, for their own different taste reasons um, and can do so by early pressing and racking reducing the overall fermentation period, uh, and keeping wine at cooler temperatures because malolactic fermentation happens best at higher temperatures. Um, and they can actually even very, very fine filter out the naturally occurring bacteria um, as an extra stage in the winemaking process to prevent malactic fermentation from happening naturally, much less hmm. um, happening with the added bacteria. Um, there's also biological inhibitors that you can put into the wine to prevent this process from happening. But many wine regions, especially in the old world, actually ban this due to local regulations around different names and regions and how wines are made. They're all, as we talked about, very sort of strict processes, uh, and they will not allow you to use non-natural biological inhibitors in that.
1: So let's linger on that for a second. Yeah. What you're saying is there are biological inhibitors that are not natural to the wine process, fermentation process, that can be added.
0: Correct. Like over-the-counter products you can buy. Oh, wow. specialty like winemaking stores. Got it. That will stop or halt altogether the malactic the naturally occurring malactic fermentation process which in most wines because the bacteria is found naturally mm-hmm. will happen even a little bit just by default of making the wine.
1: So I can imagine an alternate reality perhaps it's a reality where a wine being produced stops all natural malic malolactic fermentation and then tries to do it all artificially through inoculation to control this process. And I could see it being a disaster because it's so hard to account for how nature does it in such incremental ways.
0: And I think there's also a stigma with that. Like that Mm -hmm. would be the most involved sort of unnatural, if you will, process in making wine that I think that generally the idea is that if you have to do that much work, after the grape is picked to make your wine good, you've kind of messed up the grape process way early on. Hmm. Um, So yes, I think it just goes to show that you can, there's the whole range of, you know, the naturally occurring malactic fermentation happening in the middle to extreme additives to make it a super like, you know, buttery shard or something all the way to um, extreme measures being taken to halt any malactic fermentation from happening, which would release a very sort of maybe more in the, the Pinot Grigio type of very high acidic, um, shorter winemaking process, um, uh, mm-hmm. tart wines.
1: That makes me think about when we were discussing like a bajillion years ago, the ways in which winemakers may have other crops amongst the grapevines mm-hmm. in order to have a biodiverse soil content and just, um, exchange of nutrients and, uh, the wave of almost, uh, uni crop among grapes that kind of tried to control like how the, the genetic variations of the grape and then, you know, how it was being, uh, what it was being grown with. And this kind of fits in with that narrative of, you know, how much control do you engineer mm-hmm. and how much do you kind of just let
0: take place? Well, yeah, and exposure to different types of like fruits, for example, let's say the, the grapes are growing, the, the, the vineyards are next to like an orchard. Well, that also may introduce different naturally occurring bacterias and chemical makeups introducing into the wine process that might affect these very subtle choices that winemakers have mm-hmm. uh, and how they're, you know, they're, they're controlling or not, you know, that, that winemaking process. So one thing that stood out to me from this is just how complicated this can be. And another thing that I I think would be like a whole other rabbit hole to go into is that different strains of this same micro family of bacteria that's used for malactic fermentation, different strains can also have subtle effects. Hmm. So some strains are known to when they're added into the inoculation process to contribute to more of a bold fruit forward type of a wine. Others are known to produce more like a flowery effect from that myelastic fermentation. And so even like the sort of the different strains can have pretty dramatic effects. And if you're really into wine and you've trained your nose and your mouth to detect all these very subtle flavors, you'll probably notice very quickly. Maybe the amateur enthusiasts like ourselves <laughs> may not as quickly or as advanced. Um, it's, just, it's just a really complicated Thing. And there's so many like decision points along the way that people have to make when making wine that it is fascinating.
1: That's fascinating. I can see the intersection of this wine cast with my real everyday job
0: of looking for microbes. This is great. <laughs> yeah, we need to have more um, chemist guest speakers or something to help walk through this. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing that that is important when winemakers are choosing whether or not to augment or like limit the malolactic fermentation process is that the process itself um, creates acetic acid, and mm-hmm. acetic acid is not one of the three sort of main acids found in wine. It's considered a volatile acid, and it's very undesirable in wine. Um, And too much can actually even slow or stop the fermentation process altogether, which would completely ruin a batch of wine. Hmm.
1: Um,
0: So most countries actually have laws restricting how much acetic acid can be present in any substance for market consumption, whether that's wine, beer, hard liquor, or any other type of um, consumer good that might have traces of acetic acid. So it's both, regulated as a as a chemical compound and also just undesirable to have so by overdoing malolactic fermentation you're putting at risk the introduction of different types of acids which don't do anything positive for a wine but can really really destroy the whole thing another interesting thing that i found was that a byproduct of the malolactic fermentation process um, can be ethyl carbamate also known as urethane which is a bacteria So, the bacteria known, it's a bacteria known to produce both carbamyl phosphate and citrulline. So, basically, the the, the bacteria that is added um, in the inoculation process is known to create the conditions, uh, the precursors to which ethyl carbonate can form. And ethyl carbonate is a known carcinogen Hmm. regulated by the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau. Which has set a voluntary, not mandatory, but voluntary limit on on how much ethyl carbamate can be found um, in wines. And this is, there's still a lot of research to be done on this. There's not a lot out there, but it's highly suspected as a carcinogen and generally a very bad thing to put in your system. be one of the main things that leads to wine headaches and other really dramatic hangover effects because even it's it's kind of like smoking cigarettes mm-hmm. the small traces of these carcinogen Compounds um, can really mess with your biological system So that's another thing to keep in mind um, When deciding how much malolactic fermentation you want to be occurring in your wine based on your desired outcome Wow Wow, yeah, I kind of I kind of I started reading about this and just kind of kept going, even though I was having a hard time keeping up with the, the chemistry stuff happening in what I was reading. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was so interesting. And so like definitely things I've never heard about before. And I've, I've actually heard of malactic fermentation, mostly in relation to shards and why they're buttery. Didn't really know what it was for. Didn't really know what it was doing. And I had no idea about the, the delicate balance um, what that process is.
1: And you know what, that makes so much sense too, just because there, I don't know, winemaking is an art, right? It's a careful balance between all of these processes we've spoken about, as well as, you know, managing climate, so that when to harvest, what are the components of soil, how much water does your vineyard get? And, you know, it just adds layers and layers of complexity to these questions of are you in a warm climate are you in a cool climate are you on a mountainside <laughs> or are you by the ocean what is the you know the the kind of grapes you're growing and all of these kind of play out on a large scale but then are the effects of these very microscopic decisions that my wine sellers have to make in terms mm-hmm.
0: of acidity levels. It's kind of phenomenal to yeah. think about. And the last thing I wanted to mention, because we're having this natural wine, um, is again, like I was mentioning, the efforts to, or the tools at one's disposal to control acidic levels are less available in making natural wines. Hmm. And one of the, the most common things that new world winers especially will do is add sulfur oxide um, to wine, which absorbs oxidation and limits the amount of um, acidity that is in the final result uh, of the wine and so natural wines by default would not be using sulfur additives. Um, so they're also not using cultured bacteria or the you know any of that process um, to sort of control the malactic fermentation. Also interesting thing about sulfur oxide is that it's usually part of local wine region controls and how they can make their wine or not and how much hmm. can be added if any um and lots of the old where you can't add any at all and if you're not very careful with it a little bit too much sulfur oxide will make your wine smell like rotten eggs oh. it's literally <laughs> sulfur yeah of
1: course <laughs> <laughs> oh
0: so the the process in controlling the acid can also have in, it, in it itself very negative consequences if not done properly
1: I wonder if there is some database out there somewhere that can list either by grape, if it's a diffuse or by like actual wine produced, those kind of measurements of malolactic fermentation, you know, the amount of sulfur and, and all those different components, almost in like a a graph or a, a pie chart or something just so that we can visualize kind of the differences.
0: I'm sure if we scoured UC Davis's uh, hmm, yeah. wine academic website enough, we could probably find something like that. If someone's listening for UC <laughs> Davis,
1: please save us. <laughs> and, and if you'd love to share a graphic or an Excel sheet with all of these figures, we would be completely interested. Absolutely.
0: The other cool thing I found is the other type of acid, the the tartaric acid, which has nothing to do with the malolactic fermentation process. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the hardest like acid found in wines to control. Um, And it can clump together and crystallize when chilled. Uh, And sometimes when you pull out the cork and you see like the crystals on the cork, that's from the tartaric acid. And it's not harmful at all. It's a very naturally occurring acid in wine. There's nothing wrong with the wine if you see it crystallized. And once it sort of brings, goes up to like room temperature, it'll just naturally dissolve and go back into the wine anyways. But I also found that there's a really cool process called cold stabilization, which is a way of deliberately bringing down the temperature of the wine to crystallize those tartaric acids. And the crystallization of those over a period of time will encourage them to precipitate out of the bottle Hmm. um, to also lower the acidity levels from the tartaric acid. It's just another another random process and tool that winemakers can use to help affect um, the three different prominent acids in wine. That's amazing. That's so cool.
1: All right, so I guess the last thing I just want to go back to is to circle back to these four traits of wine and encourage everyone out there listening, and also the next time you pick up a wine, like think about the acidity level when you're taking a taste, and then measure it against... especially if it's a red wine, is it, are there tannins? How dry does your mouth become? Maybe the alcohol level, determining it via lots of things, but also like the warming sensation and then sweetness. So how sweet is it? Um, Is it, and think back to the sparkling wines episode too, right? Mm -hmm. You know, does it, um, it, does the the sweetness linger? What kind of sweetness is it introducing? Is it a, a honey? Is it a sugar? Is it a, you know, dot 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 a uh, heavy fruit um and yeah this is this is fun i really liked digging into acid i thought that was a really fun perspective into the wines that we drink
0: all the time and if anything we said was factually incorrect scientists i encourage you to go on our instagram or better yet come on this podcast and explain to us why we are wrong and tell us more please super interesting stuff <laughs> yeah wine of the week let's do some wines of the week
1: Great. So we're going to preface this, that our Wines of the Week fall under the theme of Paso Robles. So you may have seen on our Instagram this beautiful array of wines that we had the privilege of tasting on our short trip to Paso Robles, which was completely safe. We did a good job. (laughs) Um, And we tasted everything from a sparkling albarino, to a Grenache Blanc, to a Tempranillo, to a Zin. I'm probably forgetting one, but oh, and and the red blend. Mm -hmm. And it was a really great snapshot of this very important region
0: in California. Mm -hmm. So It it was Dana's birthday, so we we got an Airbnb that was pretty remote. Um, And since all the wineries are closed due to COVID, Obviously, we we're respecting that. And we just stopped by a few uh, to pick up some bottles, stopped by a local bottle shop, pick up a few more bottles, and just kind of did our own private tasting in the you know, Central Coast countryside. Um, and it was wonderful. It was great.
1: So one of the wines that I really enjoyed was the Grenache Blanc from Broken Earth Winery. And what I loved about it actually is something that I love about this wine, the Cab Franc that we're drinking, is that it has a little bit of a funky flair to it. Mm-hmm. So I typically think about Grenache Blancs as somewhere between a, and totally correct me if I'm wrong, because I only have the image of focus as Grenache Blanc in my head, which is somewhere between a Pinot Grigio and a... Um, the like the Marsan grape. So a little bit of that creaminess, yeah. a little bit of that well-rounded butteriness. So somewhere in between, and it's yeah. typically
0: very light. Roussan maybe. Roussan. Yeah, yes. exactly. That 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 creaminess.
1: And this Grenache Blanc was a little bit spackly, which I loved. Um it was perfect for a beach day and the absurdly beautiful eighty degree weather we were we were experiencing.
0: In the middle of January.
1: Yeah because California <laughs> and a lot of other things. Um, and it was, you know, the acidity was there as well. Like I remember tasting mm-hmm. a little bit of that, um, that crisp apple, a little bit of the, I guess, uh, a a brighter, a brighter stone fruit. I'm not exactly sure which. And, um, Again, all kind of encompassed by that funky, grassy, and sparkly-ness. It was, it was phenomenal. And it was so different from what I expected.
0: Yeah, that, that's a great one. And Broken Earth is a great... It's one of the bigger wineries down in the Paso area. But because of that, they have access to more unique varietals. Hmm. Uh, they do some pretty cool stuff, too. And that Grenache Blanc was pretty, pretty rad. Um, and mine is also a Paso wine... For obvious reasons. Um, And my wine of the week is the the 2017 Tempranillo from Bodega de Edgar. Bodega de Edgar is a small, very small family-run operation down in the Paso area that focuses in Spanish varietals, um, but all grown um, locally in the Paso area. And their Tempranillo was the most spanish tasting tempranillo i've ever had from outside of spain um oftentimes tempranillos are described spanish tempranillos are described as sort of the oaky leathery tobacco types of notes mixed with the the ripe cherry the dark even black you know berries and black fruits um in california they tend to be a little bit less earthy a little bit less tannic and a little bit more fruit forward even considered medium bodied in a lot of the central valley where a lot of the um, Tempranillos are found but this one was just spot on and a i would never have guessed it was from california i would have guessed it was from spain um, and it had everything and it would have held up among like some of the better Tempranillos that are had from spain if not one of the best that i've had um I will preface this by saying it was more expensive than generally we're talking about in this podcast. It was a forty-dollar bottle, um, and it was the cheapest bottle I think they had. That's a pretty pricey little winery. Um, their standard sort of estate tempranillo was like sixty or seventy or something. Pretty, pretty outrageous and pretty much beyond our means. Um, but if you want to splurge, um, even their most entry-level tempranillo was phenomenal
1: mind-blowing oh it was amazing we all i think took a sip and stopped and and what we'd made the mistake of having this wine with dinner which was a home-cooked meal of by kevin uh, of mac and cheese (laughs) and it was and we all kind of just like switched wines because it, it truly deserved its it's time alone.
0: Yeah, very poor pairing. We just ate the food and we're like, we'll drink the wine after and focus entirely on this. We were very hungry. <laughs> <laughs> we ate some food. We've been drinking a lot of wine. Um, it was really, and it was. It I was... think, yeah, we all just ter- took a sip and kind of, kind of lost our shit. It was really good. It was really good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, acids and wine.
0: And the Tempranillo was very, very subdued, mild acid. Um, mm-hmm. Very, very big and bold. Very, very soft um, acidity. And very, very well-rounded. Which, as we drink a very heavy acidic wine, tells me that we both like the entire spectrum of acidity. Yes. Um, so,
1: yeah. Yeah, that's, I think that's all we have for this
0: episode. That's all we got. We'll be back soon.
1: Yeah. Bye, everyone. Thank mm-hmm. you.